Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're, we're right at the end of uh, Sefer Breshis, and right, uh, right about to begin uh, Sefer Shmos, so the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, or the end of the beginning and the beginning of the middle of the next part of the beginning, or uh, we're, we're constantly in between. You know, this, this state of constantly being in between never ends, by the way. Uh, one of my favorite teachings from uh, Rabbi Shlomo Karloff goes like this. He says, you know, everybody loves a finished product. Everybody loves you when you're a grape, and everyone loves you when you're wine. He says, but you know what a grape has to go through to become wine? How much it has to be stepped on? Right? So, he says, who loves you when you're in between? He says, those are your real friends. And... Uh, you know, I just wanted to add a PS to that teaching, that right now the world is in between. It's not, it hasn't reached its, its state of perfection yet. So, who, who loves God while the world is still in between, while there's still evil and injustice in the world? Those are God's real friends. So that's, that's where we're now, you know. And so, you know, I've mentioned that one of the things that... that that's so beautiful about the Torah, and so empowering, because the, the implications of this really show you how influential and how important you are in, in creation, is just understanding that, that the way God made the world is, everything is microcosms within microcosms. Meaning to say that uh, in a small part of something, you have um, the ability to access the, the entirety of that thing. So probably the most um, compelling uh, example of this, and uh, the Ramak, one of the great Kabbalists, discussed this in detail, um, especially in his, his book, uh, the, uh, Tamar Devara, which is that the, the whole ten spheres, which are sort of like the, kind of like the, the mystical cosmic map of the universe, that that, that exists within each person. Um, and, you know, you'll see these charts where you'll have a, a human being and how all the different uh, spherot are, are laid out within a person. Um, but what, what that means, and here's a sort of a, a, an easier way of hearing that same teaching, the Talmud says that if you save one person, it's like you save the entire world. So that's the same idea. It's just approaching it from different angles. But what it means is that each person is a world, that each person contains the world within them. So that if you do something, what you're actually doing, even if you're by yourself alone in a room, you're actually impacting the entire world. So, so where you see these, and, and once you're aware of this paradigm, this idea of microcosms within microcosms, you see them all over Torah. Torah is completely filled with them. So, so one microcosm, to give you uh, a, a view of this, just to situate you, situate us where we are in terms of going through the Torah. And that's important because where we are in the Torah is what's going on in terms of reality right now. So if you want, if you want the real kind of like newspaper report of where the world is right now, you look in the Torah, and that kind of gives you the blueprint of what's actually going on. I heard um, Rabbi Wilson say this in a much more poetic, but even more mystical way, actually, which is he says that the that the fabric of reality is actually weaved from the letters of that week's Torah portion. 
So if you imagine just the letters of what we're reading that week, that God sort of weaves them together into what's going on around us, it's just a, a beautiful bit of imagery. So, so one paradigm, one paradigm is that that the entire Torah, which is which is a kind of a microcosm of all of human history, <coughs> that that one microcosm within that microcosm is <coughs> Sefer Breshis, the first book of the Torah, and the second book of the Torah. In other words, within that is one miniature telling of the entire story of creation. How do I mean? Because God creates the world in the beginning of Breshis, in the beginning of Genesis, and what happens is we, we get enslaved in Egypt, then we get liberated, then we get the Torah, then we build the Mishkan, the Holy Tabernacle, which is the, the prototype of the Beis HaMikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And then, then, then the second book of the Torah, Exodus ends. So that is one microcosm of the history of the world. Meaning to say that our job, basically, see, a lot of people get um, sort of scratch their heads Right now we're beginning the book of Exodus. We're, we're entering into this real state of exile. Um, and, and it's the most compelling narrative probably ever written. It's amazing just what happens. Miracles, the splitting of the sea, the downfall of the greatest empire, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, people's souls flying out of their bodies. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable just what's, what's, what we're about to start reading. And then what happens is it's, it's like you're opening a, 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 an issue of Architectural Digest. You're talking about the building of the Mishkan and measuring planks of wood and numbers of hooks and the size of curtains, and you're like, what happened? You know, there's a, I was in the middle of the greatest story ever, and now it's sort of like I'm, I'm like dealing with the minutia of building parts, you know, for week after week. It's, 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 it's mystifying. So, so to paraphrase the, the Ramban, what he says is, no, this is a continuation of the narrative. Basically, now that we're free people, and now that we have the Torah, which is the blueprint for creation, now we set about turning the entire world into a dwelling place for God. So, when we're reading about the actual building of the Mishkan, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about applying our knowledge in the world, turning the entire world into a dwelling place for God. So, that's that's one microcosm. In other words, God creates the world, and at the end of the book of Exodus, we turn the entire world into a revealed dwelling place for God. That's one microcosm. Now, there's a microcosm within that microcosm, which is Sefer Breshis itself, which is actually, even if you want to go down further, the word Breshis, the word in the beginning itself, is a microcosm for the entire history of the world. How do you see that? Well, let's break down the letters. Um, this is something I noticed, but I'm, I'm sure that, you know, thoughts like this have been around for a long time. I just haven't run into them. So, so you see something, you see something kind of cool, you know? If you break down Breshis, you can do it into three parts, okay? You've got the letter Aleph. That's within the word Breshis. That would be the first part of Breshis. Then you have the letters Resh and Yud. That would be the second part. And then the third part 
the remaining letters of Breshis spell out the word Shabbos. So, here are the three parts of Breshis. Aleph. Aleph stands for God, right? The oneness of God. Before the world was created, there was only the Aleph. There was only God. And of course, everybody knows if you break down the letter Aleph, it's composed of two Yuds and a Vav, which adds up to 26, which is Kineged Yudke Vavke, the holiest name of God. So contained within the letter Aleph is a reference not only to the number one, because that's its numerical equivalent, the oneness of God, but to the name Yudke Vavke, which is contained within the Aleph. So before the world was created, there was just God. That's part one of the word Reishis. Part two is Reish and Yud. Reish and Yud adds up to 210. 210 is the number of years that we were enslaved in Egypt. That's what we're reading about right now. And that stands for not just the enslavement of Egypt, but that stands for all exile. Because it says that the exile that we're going to be liberated from in the end of days is modeled on the Egyptian servitude. So everything is revolved around that paradigm of 210 years in Egypt. And what's the third part of the word gracious? And this is using all the letters up. Is the word Shabbos. Because what's the Messianic period called? The Great Shabbos. The, gr- the day that will be all Shabbos. So within the word Breshis itself, the first letter, the first word of the Torah, you have a microcosm of all of human history. So everything is microcosms within microcosms within microcosms. Or if you want to reformulate what I just suggested, you could start off with God created the world. And we were mentioning, I heard this, I think from Rabbi Nanus Friedman, that most people say that God created something out of nothing. We say, yesh miyayin, which means there was nothing before the world was created, and God created something out of nothing. But the, the deeper people say that God created nothing out of something. That, that before the world was existed, there was something. There was God. That's the ultimate something. And he created this world, which is really nothing. So, so God really created nothing out of something. So, but, so if you want to look at it that way, the way you can break down the word Breshis is that once God creates this world, since there is seemingly the, the illusion of separation between us and God, which is this world, right, that, that the world begins in a state of exile. So you begin by breaking down the word Breshis with the Resh and the Yud, with the 210, which stands for the years of exile in Egypt. That's the beginning of creation. Then it goes into Shabbos, right, because ultimately exile turns into redemption, right, and then at the end you have the letter Aleph, because the ultimate destiny of the world, and I'm talking about way, 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 way down the line, way after the resurrection of the dead, way down the line, is that the world disappears back into God. In other words, the ultimate destiny of the world is for it to go back into the Aleph. So in this formulation, you start with the 210, then you go into Shabbos, then it goes into the Aleph. Or, what I'd like to suggest maybe as another thought pops into my head right now, is maybe it's more like a, a circle, right? You start with the Aleph, the world starts with the oneness of God, then he creates this world which is an expression of exile, then it goes into Shabbos, right? Then it goes back into the Aleph, right? So I don't know... You know, it says that God created many worlds before he created this world. You know, by the way, and destroyed them. Created and destroyed many worlds before he created this world. It's a very mystical teaching. I I don't understand it. I don't claim to understand what that means, by the way. But 
I will tell you this, just kind of like a PS, which is kind of fascinating. The Teferis Yisrael, who's one of the great Torah commentators on the, on the Mishnah, and he lived during the 1800s. And when they first found, started finding like dinosaur fossils, the Teferis Yisrael was so happy. And he said, this is exactly what we've been teaching. This is proof of this teaching that we've had for thousands of years that God created and destroyed worlds before this one. So he celebrated when he first started hearing about these, these fossils, you know. It's just interesting how, how the Torah sages of the day received this information and integrated it into their body of knowledge. Um, so now I want to just suggest one last thing. I kind of skipped over Sefer Breshis itself being, um, the book of Genesis itself being a, uh, a microcosm. So let me just go back to that because there's something that came to me that, that I think is an interesting teaching. <clears throat> Breshis, the last letter of Breshis is a final mem. A mem sofit. The way you draw that is, it, it looks like a box. It looks like a box. Okay? And, uh, the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez. The, the letter Bez looks like a box which is closed on three sides, but So, so the, safer, the, the, the book of Breshis, the book of Genesis itself is a microcosm. It begins with the letter Bez, which is opened on only one end. And it ends with the letter Mem, which is closed on all four sides. So the letter Bez looks like the letter, the, the final Mem, except for the final Mem is closed on one extra side. Now listen to this. Um, there's a, a, a great Torah sage, his name is Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, right? And, um, and he was a student like a generation or two after the Vilna Gon, and he was uh, a recipient of the Kabbalistic teachings of the Vilna Gon. A very, very great man, and, and, uh, and anyway, so I saw this thought in, in one of his books, which is, he says, you know, Look at the letter Bays of Breshis. Why is it that it's closed on three sides, but it's open on one side? Why is it open on one side? Okay, so there are many answers to this, but he gives us a very interesting answer. He says, because, he says, it should, he's starting from the premise, by the way, that it should be closed on all four sides. In other words, if it's closed on three sides, why not have it closed on four sides? That's, that's his thinking. That's, the, that's, that, that's where he's coming from. So he says the following. He says that there is something that's not revealed in this world yet. Right? Because remember, just as a, everyone should know, that the Torah is black fire on white fire. And that black fire stands for that which is revealed in the world, and the white fire stands for that which is not revealed in the world. Okay? So when you're starting with the standpoint of a, the letter Bayes, which is closed on three sides, but it's not closed on the fourth side, that's coming from the standpoint that there's an aspect to creation that hasn't been revealed yet. And what does he say that is? The reward that the righteous will receive. Because if you want to boil down the complexity of what it means to live in this world, a lot of people, you know, they don't do it on purpose, but, you know, if you see people struggling with faith and things like that, a lot of times 
what their question boils down to, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? This is, a, a lot of times people can't even put it into words. Or, I'll put it into more modern vernacular, why is the world so messed up? <laughs> right? This is another way of saying the same thought. So, what he says is, is that that last closing of the box of Breshit stands for the reward that the righteous will receive in this world. In other words, it's an expression of the rectification of human society, of, of, of the world itself, of the perfection of the world. And that hasn't been revealed yet. And that's why the letter Bays appears without that final wall closed. Because that aspect, the completion of this world, still hasn't been revealed. Does, does everyone hear the thought? So, so, at a certain point, I don't know, maybe a year or so after I heard that teaching. You know, by the way, when you hear teachings like this, never stop thinking about them. The, the, the whole point of learning Torah is that you should have, like, I mean, not the whole point, but you should have, if you're serious about receiving this type of information, you should have about 40 different questions that you're working on all the time. You know, based on all these various teachings that you're hearing. Why is that? Go over it in your head. Ask yourself a question on it. Is that the case? Why should that be the case? And then challenge yourself to come up with an answer that is in sync with everything else that you've learned. You see, this is, this is how you're supposed to learn Torah. That everyone is sort of an independent contractor. And you're going in and you're asking yourself questions and finding new questions on the questions that you've heard. So, I'm walking around with this question, right? And it hit me that, wait a second, if Breshis, if the book of Genesis is, everything is microcosms within microcosms, then the end of the book of Genesis should be an expression of the completion of the world. And then I thought to myself, if that's the case, the last letter of the book of Genesis should be what letter? It should be the final mem, right? Because that would hint at the end of days, where the last aspect of the world, which is hidden right now, becomes revealed. The box should get filled in. The last part of the letter Bayes should get filled in. And in fact, the very last letter of the book of Genesis is the letter Mem. You know, so it's, it's the, the number of levels God is working on is phenomenal. He's working on every single possible level. You know? So, so anyway, that's just that. Now, now interestingly, the last word of Sefer Breshis, okay, so there you see on, on one level how the book of Genesis itself is a microcosm. So just to review, we showed you how Genesis and, and Exodus in, in many systems are considered one long book, if you will, even though everyone says they're two books, but they're considered one long book because it's going from the creation of the world to the building of the Mishkan, which is the revelation of turning this whole world into a dwelling place for God. Paradigm, microcosm number one. Microcosm number two, the word, the, the gracious itself is a microcosm, because you're going from the letter base to the final mem, you're seeing the entire world itself, the reward for the righteous being revealed and filled in and being completed, 
And then we did the letter, the word for Breshis itself, the very first word of the Torah. How you see the entire history of civilization all expressed within the very first word of the Torah. Okay? Now, interestingly, the last word of Sefer Breshis is the word Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means Egypt, which means exile. Okay? So that's picking up on the narrative, because now we're going all the way on the bottom, and then we're going to come back to the top. So it kind of ends with this kind of cliffhanger, if you will. And, uh, you know, it's such a... It's such an interesting thing. Basically, everything revolves around unity. Everything revolves around unity. And unity is not just a concept. It's really hard work. Unity means we're actually all getting along with each other. And that's the bottom line, you know? We have to be one with each other. We have to all be on the same team. We have to be. Because all of these ideas are great. But they have to be applied. Remember, this is called the world of action, Olam You have to apply these ideas. And it's like, it's, it's kind of funny, you know. Someone was saying to me um, the other day, he was uh, kind of sharing something going on in his personal life. He had a, you know, it's a kind of complicated business situation. And uh, kind of was just, you know, just sharing it with me. And it, and it hit me that um, he was trying to do the right thing and was doing a beautiful job, actually, with it. He was really, you know, rising to the challenge in a, in a really amazing, beautiful way. And, um, and it hit me, you know, I, my, the way I grew up, I, I didn't grow up uh, religiously observant. Um, you know, I, you know, pretty, pretty assimilated background, strong sense of Jewish pride and things like this. But, but in terms of, like, the, the aspects of the lifestyle stuff and all the rest, did, just didn't have that. And so for me, and, and I know a certain percentage of you guys as well, you know, when we think of like, kind of like, rising to the challenges of what it means to live in this world, a lot of us think like, well, I'm not doing this mitzvah and I'm not doing that mitzvah. And I want to get to the point when I'm doing this mitzvah or I'm doing that mitzvah, right? And in terms of our generation, that is a very understanding, like, paradigm. You know what I mean? That's how we think in terms of our relationship with God and our souls and spirituality and all the rest. It makes a lot of sense. But then it hit me that in previous generations, where most people were growing up in an observant household, that wasn't really so much the issue. Am I keeping this mitzvah or am I keeping that mitzvah? They were all pretty much keeping those mitzvahs because that was, that was the society that they were living in. So what were the challenges that they were really being confronted with. This guy is trying to cheat me in business. And that guy is angry at me because I said something to him that I shouldn't have said to him. Oh, you know, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, is that the, 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 the challenges of the day were more the interpersonal types of things. And they're not less so today. But sometimes we put the man-God... Uh, mitzvahs ahead of the person-to-person mitzvahs. Do, do, do you know what I'm saying? Because, because our own lives give us a skewed perspective of, of what it is our primary challenges are. And we have to realize that, you know, they're all together. They're all equally important. They're all equally important. And so, 
you know, and not only that, but it, it's, it's just important to say again, no one person is capable of keeping all 613 mitzvahs. First of all, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, and it's not that no one is holy enough. It's literally impossible, because some mitzvahs are for a king, some mitzvahs are for farmers, some mitzvahs are for women, some mitzvahs are for men, some mitzvahs are for, you know, all, all different categories of, of people, you know? Like, for instance, there are mitzvahs about how to um, fix having stolen property. So, if you're not a thief, there are certain mitzvahs that you can't do. <laughs> right? You can only, there, there are certain mitzvahs that you can only do if you are a thief, which is to return stolen property. So, so the point is, is that even under, forget about the fact that we don't have a holy temple now, and that tons of mitzvahs, hundreds of mitzvahs are tied to that, and that we're just not eligible to do right now. We don't have a Sanhedrin. There, there are a lot of mitzvahs that we just simply can't do. However, let's say the most optimal spiritual circumstances, still no individual can keep all 613 mitzvahs. The point being that even in the best of times, we have to bond together. And how do you keep all 613? Because if there's peace between me and you, then I'm able to access the mitzvahs that you're doing in your soul. And that's how we all keep all of them, by having this bond of unity between us. So with that, as an introduction, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, our forefather, is about to leave this world. And what he says is, I'm going to tell you about when the end of days is coming. He's about to reveal when Mashiach is going to come. Alright? And then, all of a sudden, he loses his prophecy, it gets cut off from him, and he can't reveal it. But, Fascinatingly, what he says is, if you actually look at the text, he says, gather round, assemble together. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the end of days. And the Rebbe is saying that this is the secret to how to bring the end of days. If everyone gathers around and assembles together, in other words, if we achieve unity amongst ourselves, that is the gateway to the end of days. It wasn't just a simple bit of instruction like, come close, I don't have a loud voice, come close so you can hear me. That wasn't it. it was, he, was, he was telling us, he was giving instructions how to achieve this great milestone in human history which is coming. Okay. Now, now I just want to point out something. We say, in, in, if, you, if you hang around Torah Jews, you'll hear a phrase which is, Hopefully not, after we should all live long, but they, they don't say so-and-so died. Okay? Whoever. They say so-and-so is nifter. They use the word nifter. Okay? Which means died, by the way. But they don't say that. They say nifter. So what does nifter mean, and why do they say nifter? Okay? By the way, you should know, it says in the Talmud, Yaakov Avinu Lomes. Yaakov Avinu never died. Okay? So that's kind of the greater context of why I'm telling you this right now. But we're not talking about Yaakov right now. We're talking about all of us. Nifter in, in, in Niftar, however you say it, in, in modern Hebrew, means to retire or to resign. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't mean to die. 
um, is related to the word, uh, like when we say, matir asurim. Niftar matir is, we say, matir asurim to be released from one's bonds, bounds, like, like, uh, you know, you're, you're unlocked, you're freed. Okay. Released. Released. That one is released. That's very, very different from dying. You see, we have something in, um, in Torah called, like, Lashunaki, which is, you try to say something in a beautiful way. Okay? So, for instance, when the Gomorrah wants to refer to someone who's blind, they don't use the word blind. They say he's full of sight. And that's their way of saying that he's blind. So you want to express yourself in a sensitive way, in a delicate way. So when we say someone is nifter, someone has, someone has left, that's, listen carefully, not an example of Lashinaki, meaning it's not that we're speaking euphemistically. Like, I'll give you an example of speaking, another example of speaking euphemistically. One of my favorites, Reb Shlomo, when it would come to Rosh Hashanah, you know, it says, says that there are two books that are opened. There's the book of life, and then and Reb Shlomo would say, and the book of not so much. <laughs> he wouldn't want to say it. He just wouldn't want to say it. Right? That's an example of speaking euphemistically. Meaning to say, you have that thought in mind, that word in mind, but you just don't want to say it. Okay? But now you've got something else. And this is the point that I'm making. When we, when we say about a person that they're nifter, we're not just trying to say dead in a sweet way. We don't want to say dead, because that's not the reality and that's not what's going on. That's the whole point. The point is, and this is such a, like, a headline thought. This is such a headline thought that it's just like amazing that we don't openly say it to each other every single day. We are immortal. We live forever. That is the reality. We live forever. Because the soul doesn't die. And all of our personality, all of our essence is in our soul and the soul continues on as us, just outside of a body. Which means we live forever. That's why we say nifter and not dead. Because dead is completely inaccurate. Now, there's, at some level it's accurate because, well, where's Joe? Joe's not here. Well, when's Joe coming? Joe's not coming. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't want to... I, I don't want you to think I'm crazy. There is a certain reality to a person who is not here anymore. There's a certain reality to that. But that is not the actual reality of the, of the, of the soul of the person, of the, of the person himself. That's the point. And we have to live with that consciousness. Because we're going to make different decisions in our lives if we know that we live forever. We're going to live our lives differently. We just are. And it's not like, well, I hope, I think, maybe, that's not it. We live forever. Now, how are you going to live your life differently knowing that you live forever? I can guarantee you, if you take that thought seriously, 
you're going to make different decisions. I guarantee you. So, so, so anyway, so Yaakov is leaving. And, and now I just want to just segue into a, a teaching that I ran across in the Medrash Rabbah. It's kind of a heartbreaking teaching, actually. And, um, and it's not that widely known. Um, you see, you see, when you learn Torah, you have to actually read the Torah. <laughs> you have to actually read what it says. And sometimes, just the way God kind of organized the storytelling, sometimes he'll put an interesting part of the story in a completely different part of the Torah. But it's all the same story. Okay? So what happens is, we all know the story of, 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 of Joseph, of Yosef and his brothers, and they sell him into slavery, and then he pretends that he's, you know, this Egyptian dictator, essentially, and he gets them to do tshuva, he gets them to rectify their having selling him, then he reveals himself, and they all hug, and they cry on each other, and everything like this, and then they all move down into Egypt, and everything like that, and we think that's the end of that story. That they all got back together, and everything like that, and all the rest. So, so if you look, and then, and then the Torah switches stories, and it talks about something else for a while. And then, pretty much at the end of Parshas Vayechi, so many pages later, but still within the first book of the Torah, toward the end of the first book of the Torah, you have this very interesting uh, section over here. His brothers, this is chapter 50, verse 18. His brothers, this is after Yaakov dies. Okay, or Yaakov didn't die, but after Yaakov is nifter. His brothers themselves also went and flung themselves before him and said, we're ready to be your slaves. Alright, so seemingly, like why are they saying that? Like haven't they all been, this is now 17 years later. After, 17 years after, um, They've all been reunited. All of a sudden, their father dies, and they're all now throwing themselves down before Yosef and saying, we're ready to be your slaves. Like, huh? Um, actually, actually, let me just take two steps back. Before they said that, they said the following. He said to Yosef, this is now uh, chapter 50, verse 16 and 17. Your father gave us orders before his death, saying, Thus shall you say to Yosef, O please, kindly forgive the spiteful deed of your brothers and their sin, for they have done you evil. So now please forgive the spiteful deed of the servants of your father's God. And Yosef wept when they spoke to him. All right? So the Medrash Rabbah wants to pick up on why did Yosef cry? By the way, you should know, of everyone in all of Tanakh, in the whole canon of Torah, no one cries more than Yosef. Yeah, by far. He wins by far. The, the, the number of times it says Yosef cried, far and away he wins. And, and interestingly, this is just my own thought on this, 
Why do we have tear ducts? Remember, Yosef is called Yosef at Tzadik. He is sort of like the ultimate person. Why does he, why do we have tear ducts at all? God could have created us a zillion, trillion different ways, but he created us with tear ducts. Why? So I would like to suggest God created for us the ability to cry. That that is actually, I mean, you could explain it in another way that is sort of draining the fluid from the eye and all the rest, and you could give an explanation like that, and I'm sure that's also true, by the way. I'm sure that's also true. But I think that part of our, the rectification and the perfection of our soul at some point involves crying. And so God created within our bodies the ability to shed tears. Because anyone knows if they've really cried, and not just cried from pain, but cried because if you've ever had those moments where you're just like, you're connecting to God in like the most amazing way, and just tears start coming out of your eyes. And if anyone hasn't experienced that, I bless you, you should experience it soon and often. Because there's, you just experience, you're just on another quantum level of closeness. There's just no other way of expressing it. And that, that agency of shedding tears is, is something that our souls need, basically. And Yosef, who's called Yosef HaTzadik, wouldn't it make sense that the model Tzadik is the one who's crying the most in all of Torah? The one who's utilizing this agency of closeness? So, but in this instance, right here, the Medrash wants to know, why is he crying? Why is Yosef crying? The brothers are saying, your father wrote this letter, here's the letter, please forgive your brothers. And then says, Yosef started crying. And you know why? You know why Yosef started crying? Because the brothers made the letter up. The letter was a forgery. And he started crying because he was like, you don't realize that I forgave you 17 years ago? 17 years you've been waiting around thinking that as soon as our father checks out that you're going to go and kill me for revenge? This is, what you, this is what's been going on in your hearts? And Yosef starts crying because he knew that if Yaakov wanted to communicate this to Yosef, no one had a closer relationship than Yaakov and Yosef. They were the closest. That, that Yaakov would write a letter to the other sons to give it to Yosef after he died, the whole thing makes no sense. And Yosef knew the whole thing made no sense. Yosef knew the brothers made it up as an act of desperation. But that act of desperation implied that the brothers felt that they hadn't been forgiven by Yosef. And that's why Yosef is crying. And then after Yosef starts crying after he receives this letter, then they throw themselves down at his feet and say, please we'll be your slaves. How many of us, you know, it's a famous thing on Yom Kippur. You know, like at the Happy Minion, for instance, we're in show all day. We start at, I don't know, 8 in the morning, and we don't finish till 7, 7.30 at night. We're, we go all day. And many shows go all day. Other shows have breaks, whatever it is. It's good to go all day, by the way, because what are you going to do on Yom Kippur? You know? How can you sleep on Yom Kippur? You know, it says that the sons of Rebbe, the sons of Rebbe couldn't sleep on Shabbos. Why? Because it says on Shabbos, every Jew is a king. And he says, listen, if a king is asleep, he doesn't know that he's a king. So, so how can I sleep on Shabbos? Right? How can someone sleep on Yom Kippur? You know, okay, certain people, they, 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 they don't have the strength. I understand. 
But I'm saying for someone who doesn't have to sleep, right? You want to just clutch every moment, you know? So, so we're, so we're in shul all day, or even if you're not in shul all day, you're at least experiencing it in some intense way. And then comes something that's almost on the level of performance art. It's almost like conceptual humor, because after the entire davening of Yom Kippur, you daven Mari for the next day. <laughs> If you've ever been through that, you're like, what? There's more praying? Yom Kippur's over and I can't leave shul yet? There's another service? Because you've got to do the, the evening service of the next day. And since you're in shul, and since it's at nighttime, it's time to do the next service. So it's like, it's always like this crazy moment. I always laugh when someone yells right after the fast and you blow the shofar and it's this huge moment and then someone says, Mariv! Right? You're like, what? And now here's the real bizarre moment. The real bizarre moment is you get to the Shemona Esrei of Mari, and it says the big moment where, which is just part of the daily mark, Slach Lanu, please God forgive us, and you pound your chest. Like, what just, what did I, what was I doing on Yom Kippur exactly? Haven't I just been forgiven for everything? No seconds after Yom Kippur, I'm pounding my chest and asking God for forgiveness? What did I do exactly? What did I do that I have to be doing tshuva again, seemingly? Like, what? So I heard an explanation. I wish I could tell you who. It's, for me, one of the great thoughts. I'm doing tshuva on the fact that I don't believe that God actually forgave me. Yeah. There's a question in my mind. Did God really forgive me? And so, because I don't really actually believe what I've just been doing the last 24 hours, the last 25 hours... That's what I have to fix. So, Yosef forgives his brothers. Yosef forgives his brothers, but his brothers don't believe that they've actually been forgiven. And how many of us walk through life wondering, like, did we, were we actually, you know? You know, God doesn't bear grudges. The whole point is, God, is, God loves us to pieces. That's, that's who God is. God loves us. He's, what, what do you think every single breath you're taking is? Don't you think that's another form of a divine hug? God is saying, I believe in you. I want you to stick around. I want more of you. You, you can do it. Whatever it is. I, I put you into this world for a reason. You can do it. You can do it. I love you. Here's another breath and another breath. And here's a few dollars. And here's a few more dollars. Here's a piece of fruit. And here's a sunset. And you know what? You like Mission Impossible? All right, I'm going to make another Mission Impossible. What are we up to now? Four? All right, here's another one. You know, can take some time off, see Tom Cruise. You know, I mean, what, what do you think is going on other than this ongoing love affair? What, what, what is it that you have in mind? That God materialized you so that he can, like, play around with you like a, like a, like a cat torturing a mouse? Like, that, that's who God is? That he can pick you up by your tail and kind of like flick at your head? That, does, it, does it make any sense whatsoever? God's so petty? So, so how does Yosef console the brothers? So now this is unbelievable. So... So, after the brothers now throw themselves down, right? They've come up with this letter 
seemingly from the father. And I don't think that, by the way, it, Yosef ever says anything to them that this letter is not real. Which in, which in and of itself is like a very interesting moment. I'll tell you a story. kind of reminds me. I had a roommate in college. And um, his, his father, no, I think it, his father or his grandfather, I think his grandfather, was the president of a college, Williams College. It's a very prestigious college on the East Coast, a small college, but very, very hard to get into. Um, and he was a member of a regular poker game. Okay? And there was one person in that circle wh- when they would play poker, because it was just, you know, like a fraternity type of thing, you know? Like they weren't really gambling, it was just a way for them to get together and spend some time together. There was one member of that group who cheated on a regular basis. Okay? Now listen to this. This is actually devastating. And, you know, no one ever said anything. This is over a period of time. long time. And then one time, he cheated so clumsily that he realized, and no one said anything. And at that moment, he realized that they knew he had been cheating for years and had never said anything to him. And I got the chills just thinking about that. And he was completely humiliated and he never came back again. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? So, 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 Yosef, that was just kind of a side point, I'm not really connecting it to this, but Yosef doesn't point out the forgery to the brothers. Right? Instead, look at the greatness of Yosef. By the way, by the way, there's something that everyone has to know. This is a very important um, uh, uh, key into how, how God uh, relates to us. Okay? So you have to know this. God gives us tests. God gives us tests all the time. At first I didn't think this was a Jewish concept, but it's a very Jewish concept. We're constantly being tested, okay? It's not necessarily the best word for it, but basically God just wants to mine our potential. And the vehicle through which we're able to get out our inner essence into a way that we're actually manifesting it. In other words, sometimes you hear this expression, uh, cardiac Jews. Have you ever heard this expression? Those are people who are Jews at heart. Right? In my heart, I'm a Jew. Right? So, we're not so into cardiac Jewry. Right? Because, because we want to take whatever's inside us and manifest it in the world. Because, again, this is Olamasiya. This is the world of action. Where actions are the primary focus. Okay? So much so that someone can even have bad thoughts. But if they're doing the right thing, that's considered, alright, you're, you're in a good place. You know? Ideally, you want to, you know, refine every aspect of your being. But, if it's, if it's the, the choice between not doing it or doing it, it's best by far in every version to do it, right? And we have something called Shalolishmo Bolishmo, which is that even if you aren't doing it with the whole heart, if you keep on doing it, eventually you get an opening and, and you begin to do it in, 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 a, in a real way. Okay. But anyway, getting back to this, this idea... You have the test, and now listen carefully, God gives us the test after the test. 
And most people don't know that this exists as a, just as a category of things, which is the test after the test, which is once you've gone through the test, God kind of checks back in. You know, you ever go for a doctor's appointment and you're okay and the doctor says, call me in like another five weeks, right? So God kind of does that. He revisits that idea to see whether you're still holding in that way, okay? So think about this, if you, if you will. Yosef has forgiven his brothers, right? And now they, because of their own brokenness, because of their own inability to forgive themselves, because they have a tradition in their family, because remember, what does Esau say after Yaakov takes the bracha? Esau says, I'm going to wait till my parents die, and then I'm going to kill Yaakov. You remember? So they have in their family history a model that as soon as the parent checks out, then I'm going to go and get my revenge. So the brothers aren't completely making this up. You know what I mean? They have some sort of historical grounding to think that now that Yaakov is no longer here, now this is the moment that Yosef has been waiting for. So it's not just Mishigas in their own mind. They've got, you know, they've, they've, you know these were very amazing people. They, they have a reason to think what they think. Because on one level, they think the sin was lying to their father and bringing the bloody coats. I mean, they think that's the real part of the problem, that they lied. Not what they did to Yosef, but that they paid about it to their father. Yeah, there's so but many parts to it. another false letter. There's so, there's so, yeah, and you're right, like, what was going on with them, again, it's, it's always, everything is always going on at the same time, you know what I mean? They're being tested on other things within this test. So, so, Yosef has the following opportunity. Here's what Yosef could have said. In other words, did Yosef, how fully did Yosef really forgive his brothers? This is what's being tested right now, on one level. Here's what could have been said. You ready? You bring this letter to me? My father never wrote this letter. You actually think I didn't forgive you? I did forgive you. Do you know what it took for me to forgive you? In other words, the bawling out that he never gave them. The table was beautifully set right now for him to give them the yes. And after you did that to me, and still, you don't even know that you're forgiven? He could have done that. He could have done that. And you know what? I think a lot of people would have done that. You know, oh, you, do you remember? I don't know if you ever saw this movie, The Dirty Dozen. It's like a classic male, you know, buddy film. You know, it's like a super classic. So I, I remember watching it as a kid. And they finally get out. They finally escape. And they're driving out of the, of the enemy camp, you know? And they're in the car and you can't believe it. It's like a great film. You can't believe it that, they, that, they, that they've escaped. That they finally won. And the guy in the back seat says, We made it! And then he gets shot in the head and dies. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you're not out till you're out. You know? <laughs> So, you know, and you're like, as a kid, you're watching, you're like, what? You can't even believe it. I remember there's, there's a famous episode of 30-something. I never saw it. I never really watched that show, but I know a certain age group that was a very important show for them, uh, you know, in life. Um, 
probably 30-some things, <laughs> just speculating here. Um, so they said, in, I don't know if it was the, 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 uh, the season ender or the series ender. I don't know what, but it was like a big episode. And they were like, this week someone dies. Right? And, and it was like, you know, everyone was like, oh my God, who's going to die? Who's going to die? Like, you know, they loved their cast. That cast was like a family for a, lot, a large part of America. And then someone gets diagnosed with a terrible disease. Or, I don't know, maybe the, maybe the person had been living with the disease and the disease got worse. Whatever it is, someone's got a disease in the episode. And you're thinking, oh no, that guy's going to die. I, or maybe it was a woman, I don't know. I, I love that character. That character's going to die. Oh no. And then, at the end of the episode, another character who's perfectly healthy gets hit by a car and dies. Completely out of the blue. It wasn't, it wasn't that character. And it was like the perfect mislead. It was the perfect mislead. And so, so, so we don't know. We don't know. I'll tell you something. I'll tell you something. Sexual temptation. Sexual temptation, it says in the Talmud, is something that never leaves a person. Even when they're old. God never takes it away from a person. You're never free from that. A person is never free from that while they're alive in this world. So why am I telling you this? Because there are certain things you have to be you have to be aware that a category exists which is the test after the test. We have to understand ourselves as works in progress. We are all works in progress. It's very very important. Because if you ever think that you're done in a certain area of your life, that's the best, that's like almost bringing on a test. It's almost bringing on a test. And it's the best example that you aren't done in that area, if you actually think that you're done in that area. Um, so now, Yosef has this opportunity to actually get angry. And you don't see him ever calling them on the forgery. Which is an amazing thing. He just lets it slide. He just goes in his mind something like, well, he cries. He cries, but he doesn't say anything. And now the Medrash actually tells us that he listened to the greatness of Yosef. That Yosef now realizes that he has to reassure them again. He's already reassured them many times. But now he realizes, you know what? They need more comforting. And so the Torah then goes on, and it says, But Yosef said to them, after they say, we'll be your slaves, But Yosef said to them, Fear not, for am I instead of God? Although you intended me harm, God intended it for good. In order to accomplish, it is clear as this day, that a vast people be kept alive. Right? Because this famine was going to basically kill out humanity. And Yosef stops this famine from kicking in. Yosef keeps the world alive. It's an amazing thing. So now, fear not. I will sustain you and your young ones. Now, here's the Medrash wants now to pick up on this last line. He comforted them and spoke to their heart. So the Medrash says, how do you speak to someone's heart? Right? Like, so what they said, no, what it means is that he comforted, comforted their heart with words. So then, you know, in the extraordinary Jewish way, the Medrashan says, what words did he say? You know, you say you comforted him with words? We want to hear the words. What are the words? So, so, 
So now listen, he gives them a list of arguments. And I just want to go through some of the arguments that he makes for his brother. And there's an interesting lesson in this too. But let's just go through them a little bit and then we'll comment on them. So he says to them, the the Jewish people over the course of scripture are likened unto different things. One, when, when God talks to Abraham, he says we're going to be like the dust of the earth. Right? So he says, he says to his brothers, you've been likened to the dust of the earth. Right? And just as with the dust, with the dust of the earth, um, making you indestructible, just as with regard to the dust of the earth, for who is it that can eliminate the dust of the earth? Meaning, how are, you can't get rid You guys, you don't have to worry. You're like the dust of the earth. There's no way, even if I wanted to get rid of the dust of the earth, that I can get rid of the dust of the earth. Then he says, you've been likened unto the beasts of the field. Because if you look at the blessings that Yaakov gives his children, this one's like a lion, and this one's like a wolf, and he compares, this one's like a donkey, he compares them to all different animals. He says, just like you've been likened to the, to the beasts of the field, who can get rid of all the animals in the world? Right? Then he says, you've also been likened unto the stars. Right? Now listen to this. This is, I love this. He says, just like ten stars can't get rid of one star, what's that a reference to? When the brothers tried to eliminate Yosef. Right? He says, just like ten stars couldn't get rid of one star, how can one star get rid of ten stars? That interesting? Brilliant. 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 Look at, now just let's just take a moment to just look at how he's speaking to them. What the what the um, what the theme is here. Seventeen years ago, he told them, I totally forgive you. He came to them from a standpoint of love. Not only that, but he also said, look, it was all from God. God wanted to keep the world alive, so, so he wanted you all to be fed. So he used me as the vehicle to feed everybody. It was just God. You can't get a more, if, if, you, if you wanted to think about it, what could be a more beautiful thing to say to them than that? But clearly, 17 years later, it didn't work. Clearly it didn't work on some level. So now what is he saying to them? Listen to the psychological sensitivity on the part of Yosef. They think that I'm out to get them. So now I'm comforting them in a different way. Don't you realize, even if I tried to kill you, even if I wanted to kill you, I couldn't kill you? Look how he's giving them confidence. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. You have to know when you're talking to people, and I'm talking to all of us right now, when you're talking to people, you have to know where that person is in their life. You have to know what, what do they need to hear. What agency does their healing have to come through? Sometimes it's through, I love you and I forgive you. Sometimes that'll work. Sometimes it's like, I can't hurt you if I try to hurt you. And that's what, that's, what, what, that's what Yosef is saying, okay? Now, now he says some more things. And now, and now I want to just dwell on this last thing, because he, he says something different. The rabbis say something different here, which is, maybe we'll wrap it up with this also. Oh, okay. 
um, which is they're now approaching it from a different angle. Now, now the, the, the Medrash Rabbah wants to key in on the actual words that were said, as opposed to the back and forth, okay? So it says, it says that he comforted them and he spoke to their heart. Now, there's something very, very beautiful here. You know, the rabbis were masters of the entirety of Scripture. And basically, what they, what they knew is they, they saw the entire Torah in front of them at all times. So, if there's any phrase that's used in this context, that's used in a completely different context, but they mirror each other, then they bring it together and they show you how they're working together. Okay? So, let me just set this up in the following way. <coughs> Yosef, in other words, they're going to compare, they're going to compare this phrase, Yosef spoke to his brothers and comforted their hearts, to another phrase I'm going to tell you in a moment. Okay? But just so you fully understand what's going on with Yosef, because they're assuming this knowledge um, before you read the next part. You see, something astounding happened. See, in terms of um, in terms of just debating strategy, if you want to know how to debate well, or often just get through life well, one of the things that you do is you question the other person's premise. Okay? Because a lot of times, very fanciful and very persuasive um, arguments are built on wrong premises. Okay? And if you don't address the premise, there's no way that you can, that you can unlock or, or disprove what the other person has said. So you have to go after the premise. Okay? That's, that's, one, that's one way of... And, and, and that's very important in our own lives. And I'll just give you a, just an example. A, not much of an example, but just, just to tell you. I, I was late for a meeting, and I had to get a, a long way, and, and there was one street that I was taking in order to get to the, the freeway, and that street early on was bumper-to-bumper traffic. And I've been on that street, where if that street has traffic, just getting past that street can take 10, 15, 20 minutes. And that's basically when I had to be at my appointment, which was all the way on the other side of the city. So I'm thinking, I am stuck on this street, I took the wrong street, and I'm just like, you know, having all sorts of anxiety at this point, you know? And it's bumper-to-bumper. And what I can see is just on the corner of that block that I'm on, they're doing a little bit of construction, and it's just bumper to bumper on that block. And so, as soon as we get to the corner, it opens up and I'm fine. So my entire anxiety attack, basically, was based on a completely mistaken premise that the bumper to bumper traffic that I was experiencing was through was true for, for several blocks, Right? It wasn't the case. There are zillions of examples of that in our own life, where we experience a hardship, but it's based on an incorrect premise. Okay. So, what was the premise of the brothers' suffering? Was that this Egyptian dictator was basically out to get them. 
But you know what? The premise was false because it was Yosef. The premise itself was false because it was Yosef. They didn't know it. They didn't know it. And then Yosef, all of a sudden, when everything is about to fall apart, at this point, the worst thing that could possibly happen is just happen. Yosef, disguised as, you know, their enemy, has just taken Binyamin, Benjamin, captive, which basically means that Yaakov is going to die. So the whole structure is collapsing in front of their eyes at this moment. Okay? Then, Yo- then Yehuda, right, pleads to Yosef and says all the right things, like in this amazing thing. By the way, by the way, they didn't know that Yosef could speak Hebrew, and they had translators there, because Yosef didn't want them to know that he could speak Hebrew. That was part of his disguise. So the Chovetz Chaim addresses an interesting point. How is it that Yehuda makes this plea in Hebrew when he doesn't think that Yosef can understand Hebrew? And the answer is, is that we've got a, a foundation that the rabbis say in the Talmud that words that leave the heart, enter the heart. If you speak from your heart, it enters into another person's heart. And so Yosef was just depending upon the fact that the way that he was saying and the level of passion that he had and the level of sincerity that he had would just penetrate into Yosef's heart. Anyway, What's the point? The point is, is that is that Yosef reveals himself and he says, Ani Yosef, I am Yosef. And the brothers' minds are literally blown. They are speechless. They can't say anything. They're like... And they realize in one flash, in one flash, they realize that everything that they've gone through makes sense. So it says... After 120, we're going to stand before God with all of our questions and all of our suffering and everything that we've been through and God is going to say, Ani Hashem, I am God. And then all of a sudden, everything is going to become clear. In other words, all of the false premises that we've had, that we've lived our lives with, are all going to be Erase. They're all going to be, they're going to vanish. They're going to vanish, like instantaneously. And everything is going to become clear. Everything is going to become clear. So now, let's look at this. It says that Yosef spoke to their hearts. Now, that is reflected in, in something that we say and what, 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 after Tishabav, we have something called Shabbos Nachamu. Tishabav, everybody knows, represents, that's the blackest day in the Jewish calendar. The first base of Migdash was destroyed, and the second base of Migdash was destroyed, and the Spanish Inquisition was ordered, and tr- cartloads and cartloads of handwritten Talmuds were burned by a person who would later be known as St. Louis, that the city is named after, believe it or not. You know, just, just as a historical footnote, Rash, Rashi was, was a French Jew. Where do you see the great rabbis after Rashi in France? You don't see them so much. They're not. Why? 
Because basically all these handwritten Talmuds, which were very hard to write and took a long time, they gathered them all together, cartloads of them, and they burned them. So you have to understand one of the implications of that is the next Rashi and the Rashi after that and the Rashi after that all disappeared with the burning of those, those, with those Talmuds. You know? St. Louis was Spanish? St. Louis was French. French? Yeah. Um, burned it in Paris. Paris? This was on Tisha B'Av. World War I started on Tisha B'Av. And all historians say that World War II is an extension of World War I, which means you can say the Holocaust, so to speak, can be traced to Tisha B'Av. All, all sorts of horrible things happen on Tisha B'Av. All the questions of, of the suffering of the world can all be kind of like summed up. Tisha B'Av. Right? And again, so, what you described as a false premise. Thinking that I'm stuck here, I'm going to be stuck here forever, and it's all going to be bad. In fact, it was. So, so that's exactly what, the same thing. So the half Torah that we read after Tishabav is from Isaiah Yeshaya, and he says, "Nachumu, nachumu ani," which is, "Be comforted, be comforted, my people." Now, this word "nachumu" is the same word, not the exact same word, but the same root, the same word that Yosef uses when he consoles his brothers. It says, Yosef comforted them and he spoke words to their heart. Listen to this. Comfort, comfort, nachamu, nachamu, my people, the same word that Yosef use, uses, says, says your God. This is God speaking to us after Tisha B'av every year. Speak to the heart of Yerushalayim. Right? So, the same words... It says, God is speaking to the heart of, of Yerushalayim, meaning all of us. Um, just like it says, Yosef spoke to the heart of his brothers. So, what the rabbis say is, is that at the end of days, God is going to speak to our hearts. That just like Yosef consoled the brothers who went through this completely traumatic experience... God is also going to comfort us in the end of days, and He's going to speak to our hearts, and He's going to comfort us for this traumatic exile that we're going through. And just I'll just end with that, and just 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 say just one last recap. We don't die. We don't die. We don't die. If you understand that you have a soul, and you understand that the soul lives on, then you yourself believe that you don't die. So why not just put two and two together and say, I don't die? In other words, why leave these as random scattered thoughts that haven't been integrated into your consciousness? If we don't die, say, I don't die. And if you don't die, then how are you going to live your life differently? Knowing that you're not going to die. And knowing that we're still in the middle. And that God, everything that God is doing, He puts up a lot of very persuasive premises in front of us. A lot of people who look like Egyptian dictators in front of us. You know? But that's not what it is. That's not the real premise. There's something behind the premise. There's the Aleph behind the Rish and the Yud. Right? There's God behind the exile in Brashis, if you remember. And that's how we have to live. Okay, have a great week. Thank you.